Happy Father's Day, each of you. You're not all, you're not all fathers, I know that. I pray this is a blessed day for each of you as fathers. Last Sunday, we looked at the duties of wives. They are to submit to the authority of their husbands. And we as husbands can make it so much easier for our wives if we will practice what we're going to study today in our marriage relationships. So let's strike a balance. That balance is mutual submission. It's a result of being controlled and filled by the Holy Spirit. And when that takes place, we will experience, as a result, joyful worship, continuous thanksgiving, but also mutual submission. As I said last week, Submission in my life provides evidence that we have spirit-controlled relationships. And when submission is not there, the spirit is not active. We are in this section, near the end of a section on walking worthy. Paul reminds us who we are in Christ He reminds us of all that God has done for us, making us his children and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And he now challenges us to live in light of these realities. Understand what he's saying? You have a choice. I can choose to live like a child of the king with all the benefits Or I can choose to live like a wanton sinner. I choose every day how I live. Now last Sunday, I gave each of you an assignment. Oh, that's right, Pastor, you did, didn't you? I asked you to work on a definition of biblical love, and I also asked you to write it down. And I hope some of you took some time to at least give this some thought. I would like to share with you some of my thoughts on the biblical definition of love. Matter of fact, I have put together a short PowerPoint to give you my findings. So Jerry, would you switch? Good. What is love? What is biblical love? And there's a blank there in your outline if you wish to jot down. There's going to be nine points, and I'm going to leave them up for the rest of the message. They don't have to be in your definition, but let me tell you the passage that I have based much of this on. Found in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love towards us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now we know that verse, but in that one little verse there is packed pieces of a definition of what biblical love is. It's based upon the Old Testament word hesed and the New Testament word agape. Well, let's go. Number one, love is a choice. Next slide, please. 
There we go. An act of my will. Now, it's more than just a feeling. Now, can feelings be a part of love? What's the answer? Yes. But I'll tell you, in 44 years of marriage, there have been one or two days that my wife has not been very lovable, feeling-wise. And, and many times the opposite direction towards me. Sometimes I've been a jerk. Sometimes I have been uncaring. Sometimes I have not listened. Does that mean that love gets snuffed off? No. We choose to love. Secondly, it involves a commitment or a covenant. I'm in relationship with someone. And we say in marriage ceremonies, we're going to get married and we're going to love each other for better or for... Yeah, you've heard it before. But why, when people go through the worse, do they bail? Because there's no commitment. Thirdly, love involves self-denial. Next slide, please. Putting another's needs before mine. Self-denial. Number four. It involves self-sacrifice. One more. One more. Good. Even at the price of my own comfort, safety, or benefit. How many young men have I done in premarital counseling and they say, I would die for my wife. Okay, get married. And then give this up, will you? The remote control for the television. Uh, that, that's a little, little self-sacrificing, isn't it? My comfort, my safety, my benefit, I'm willing to give to someone else because I love them. Next slide, please. Next one. Love is unconditional. It's not based on a person's merit. We live in a culture that says, I'll love you if you do this. I'll love you if you stay beautiful. I'll love you if you still bring in enough bucks to, that I can live in a manner to which I'm not accustomed or I love you because those are not unconditional. See, unconditional love is unconditional acceptance of an imperfect person. Amen? Is there anyone here that's imperfect today? I think we all are. But to make love work biblically, I have to look past their imperfection and be committed to them unconditionally. Next slide, please. Next slide. There you go. 
love, biblical love, must be demonstrated. Number six, demonstrated. Thoughts, desires, and words must be translated into action. Oh dear, I love you. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Yeah, I know my clothes have been down in the corner. My dirty clothes have not been picked up for two weeks. But, uh, but dear, I love you. We can say all the right words, but love must be demonstrated because words are cheap. Amen? Words are cheap. And God demonstrated his own love towards us. That while we were yet sinners, we were unlovable, we were filthy in sin. Christ died for us. Number seven. Next slide. Love is costly. Sometimes dearly. If your love does not cost you something, you are not loving to the right depth. The love that God demonstrated towards us involved the death of his son. Costly. Number eight. Next one. Love is seeking the highest good for another person. Seeking the highest good for another. What, what is best for you? Not what's best for us or for me. What's best for you? And sometimes that's not what they want to hear, but it's still best. One author said, it is joyfully pursuing the best for another. I love that. I had to capture that for you. Joyfully pursuing the best for someone else besides yourself. Now, as you look at this list and you say, how can we pull this off? Number nine, love needs divine enablement and power to accomplish this. Amen? Amen. You can't do it in your own strength. You will run out of gas. And we need the ministry of the Holy Spirit in energizing each one of us. To love biblically. To love unselfishly. To love self-denial, self-sacrificially. I believe that encompasses a biblical definition of what love is. And as you kind of ponder on those nine points, we're going to look at the text found in Ephesians chapter 5. What does submission in marriage look like for both the man and the woman? Turn with me to Ephesians 5. Pew Bible 12.45. Let's go start at 22. We did this last week, but let's kind of review 22 to 20 
four, and he only spends three verses for the, for the wives, and then he just hammers the husbands. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. His body is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Oh, just wait, wives. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, a husband should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So ends the text. The command is found in verse 25, the very first words. Husbands, love your wives. And this isn't my funny, but Paul understands us men are a little dense. And he's going to repeat that phrase over and over and over again in this text to make sure you get it. Husbands, love your wives. On the surface... Love seems easier than submission until we understand the biblical qualities and their heavy burden of responsibility as a leader within our homes. And please understand, this biblical, unconditional love is regardless of whether or not your wife submits to you or not. Isn't that a kicker? Lover, lover. Like I said last week, but I'll say now to the husbands, Paul is asking husbands to give up their self-centeredness. Paul, even on Father's Day, the one day a year that we get a little bit of attention? Yes, even on Father's Day. When I was in seminary, I had a, Professor Dr. Pentecost, and he had a student come into his office one day, and he told us this story years later. And he said, we called him Dr. P, Dr. Pentecost. He said, I have a problem. He said, son, what's the problem? He said, I love my wife too much. And he sat down with this student, and this student poured out his soul on how much his wife meant to him and would it possibly detract him from ministry and, and serving Christ. 
And Dr. P just opened up to Ephesians 5 here and he said, Son, the day that you die for your wife will be the day that you love her too much. Until then, keep working at it. Love your wives. Now, starting in the middle of verse 25, he's going to give us the example of Christ of what that love looks like. He uses the word as which is a comparison to the love demonstrated by Christ. He is saying, husbands, love your wives according to Christ's standards, not the world's standards. So the question becomes, what is the measure of a husband's love for his wife? And you're going to see in these passages how Christ loved the church in the past, how he loves her in the present, how he loves her in the future. Verse 25b, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the past, Christ gave himself up for the church. He died for her. He unselfishly surrendered heaven and glory and his preferences and he let go of his self-seeking desires to meet the needs here of the church, his bride. Self-sacrificing. And husbands, you need to know something about your wives. If you are not self-sacrificing for her, she knows it. She knows it. She sees your selfishness. Your self-centeredness. Christ left glory because he loved the church so much that he went to a sacrificial death for each one of us to save us. Well, that was the past. Verse 26 is the present, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. See, Christ presently is in the process of sanctifying us, of setting us apart for a sacred purpose. He wants to make something special in us. He's setting us apart. Now think about this. He's setting us apart for himself as his forever. Oh, he is getting us ready. It involves spiritual cleansing, which took place at the moment of conversion, but also notice that his continued washing is continuous cleansing through forgiveness, a process of moral and spiritual preparation for the bride. So one day we will meet face to face the groom. I will never forget August 1975 in my wife's home church. I had not seen her all day, and I stood up here on the platform of a church, and I looked in the back, and there was my bride. <laughs> my knees went weak. I had never seen her so radiant and beautiful. 
it, it takes my breath away. One day, we will be the bride of Christ in real time. And Christ is doing things right now to prepare each one of us for that moment, present. But what's going to happen in the future, verse 27, that he, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The ultimate purpose or goal of all of this is that we are presented in this idea of presentation pictures a future wedding. And he says the bride, which is us, is, has no spot, no defilement on the outside, no sin, no wrinkle, no decay on the inside. We will be the perfect bride of Christ. And today, as we are moving closer and closer to that moment, we are growing towards Christ's likeness more and more every day as Christ and the Spirit are working within us. The question for you as husbands this morning are you honoring your wife as a precious gift from God? Are you honoring your wife as a precious gift from God as Christ honors the church and works towards her holiness? Every day he is making us more and more holy. In verses 28 to 30, Paul is going to apply the truths that we've just learned in verses 25 to 27. 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives. Here it is again. Just so you don't forget it, men. Love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Men, how we treat our wives reflects our own character, our own integrity, our own self-respect as husbands. And he says in verse 28, in marriage, two become one flesh. And in a figurative sense, a man's wife becomes a part of his own body. The relationship is so deep and intimate that the husband and wife are seen by God as a single being. Now, what does that mean? When I listen to my wife, I, now this is a man talking, when I am listening to my wife, I am hearing part of myself, and I'm listening for God perhaps to speak through her to me. Let me repeat that, men. When, maybe I should say if I listen to my wife, when I listen to my wife, I am hearing part of myself, 
And I'm listening for God perhaps speaking through her. We must see our own wives as who they are and provide for them comfort, protection from harm, security, develop her potential, care for her needs. Why? Because that's the example that Christ sets for us. He nourishes and cherishes the church. That's us. We sing Christ's praises every Sunday. He provides for us. Amen? He takes care of us. Amen? He cares for us. Amen? Is there anything you lack because he has not provided it? The answer is no. As husbands, we are to tenderly care for our wives just as Christ does his own body because we are his body. This is the mystery. We are one with Christ. And here's the other corollary. We are one with each other because we're all in the same body. And when one rejoices, we all rejoice. And when one weeps, when one is hurting, we all hurt. Because we're all connected. Verse 31, 32. Marriage is a mystery. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, which speaks of the unity and the permanence of marriage. And that little verse there reinforces the essential unity of marriage that takes priority even over the family relationships of parent and child. The family is the core unit of creation. And that Genesis 2 passage, which is quoted again in verse 31. Leave, hold fast, become one. Leave, cleave, become one. My observation is that many marriages fail because they do not follow all three of these pieces. Some people in marriages never leave mama or dad. Yes, physically they've moved out. But mama and dad are still calling the shots, still emotionally connected to the kid, still financially bailing them out every chance they can get to keep the child dependent upon them. And you wonder why after five to seven years, the other mate said, I'm not necessary. Leave. Cleave. Old English word. See, I used to think of meat cleaver. No, cleave has the idea of super glue. I've had the dubious distinction. I'm not proud of it, folks. 
I have glued my finger to my thumb twice in my life. Both times I did not have fingernail polish remover. The first time I was ignorant. And when I found out that I couldn't separate them, I said, oh, no big deal. Glue will always split right on the seam, right? And I did this. Both my finger and thumb donated flesh to the other appendage. My two fingers were so ripped up. Stupid. But as I have talked to people who have gone through divorces, it is this ripping of flesh in that division that is never easy or pretty or it just hurts. I am very careful with super glue nowadays. Leave, cleave, become one. There are some marriages who never develop that level of intimacy, who never operate as a unit who keep their finances separated as far as the east is from the west and say, you make it work on your money and I'll make it work on mine. Now, I'm not saying that is wrong, but it doesn't build oneness within the relationship. And then he says in 32, this mystery is profound. Paul is saying this profound hidden truth has now been brought to light. Do you understand that one of the purposes of marriage is to model Christ's relationship to the church? And the more our marriages reflect the ideal of mutual submission, the more we reflect to others the mysterious relationship of Christ and believers. Now some of you are probably saying, I don't see submission in there anywhere for the men. I've left that blank until now. Would you like to fill it in? As husbands, we are to be submissive to her needs. Does not Christ submit to our needs as a church, yes or no? Yes. The King of glory takes care of us. How does my wife know that I love her? I demonstrate it. I find out what she needs and I take care of it. Sometimes I don't even ask her, and I anticipate it, and sometimes I get it wrong. But for the most part, she loves that I'm taking the initiative because I am mutually submissive in my relationship. What's the responsibility of headship, of loving leadership? Four things, and these come out of verses 25 to 27. Loving through surrendering to her needs. That's my first responsibility as a husband. Loving through surrendering to her needs. 
Well, she shouldn't need that. Well, did she say she needs it? Then get it for her. Give it to her. Make it happen. Show her you care and love her. Secondly, sanctifying through serving her. Sanctifying through serving her. Thirdly, caring through forgiving her. Are there any wives in here that need forgiveness on a regular basis? I know us men do. We do. We all do. Show her you love her by forgiving her. Number four, honor her through leading her in love. When my wife knows, doesn't guess, when my wife knows that I love her, she feels honored. She feels like the queen of the castle. And I can help make that happen on a regular basis if I am not so stinking self-centered. Honor through leading her in love. See, this is a love so complete and so righteous that the wife need never fear or suffer from her life of submission. As I do premarital, I'll say to the, the future husband and wife, we've talked about submission, and they're, uh, submission. Then I, I lay out the men's side of this, and I'll say to the wife-to-be, could you submit to a man who loves like this? I don't think I have yet had anyone wait more than a second and said, yes. Yes, I could. See, in verse 33 is the summary of the essential message of exercising mutual submission towards one another in a marriage. Love your wife. He, he says it again. Love your wife as himself. Paul is reminding us, she is one with you. I didn't bring this prop, but could you imagine I would bring out a nice hammer here, and I would lay my thumb here on the little bench, and I would line that hammer up so nicely, and I would begin to Smash my thumb. You would, you would commit me, would you not? Because when I did it the second or the third time, you'd say, what is wrong with him? Why do some of you treat your wives just like that? You're hurting yourself. You're causing her pain, but the, the pain will eventually be yours. What does this mean for us? As I worked on this message, what a daunting task or duty that the Lord gives to us as husbands. As I evaluated my own life, I, I have failed this too often, just like you. 
Would you please repent as husbands that you have sinned against the gift that God has so given you by grace, that he has blessed you with? Would you say to God, you know, I have not understood her full value. I have lived in ways that I have just taken advantage of her. And it's wrong. Secondly, and this is going to be even more uh, gutsy, when you have some time this afternoon and the kids are away, would you ask your wife to forgive you for the times that you have not been attentive, that you have not been receptive to the real needs in her life? How many times have you told her, just pull up your big girl pants and get real here? we got work to do. What a travesty. And you wonder why she treats you with such disrespect, because she sees a lack of love. Thirdly, Would you ask God to repair the damage of the past? Would you ask God to control you by his Holy Spirit? Would you ask him today, would you start afresh in our marriage as husband and wife? Teach us how to mutually submit one to the other. Biblically, love your wives Submit to the authority of your husband that loves you like crazy. And then fourthly, as if this weren't hard enough, do you realize, and I think you do, but let me just remind you that you are modeling to the next two generations what godly marriage looks like. And you are also modeling to your kids and your grandkids what the relationship is of Christ and the church by how you live out your marriage. If you want your children to have a great marriage, they need to see it in yours. Now, all of our marriages are flawed. Amen? They're flawed. But the Spirit can change things. Wives, I don't want to leave you out because I talked to you last week, but would you, would you do this? Would you, in a fresh way, pray for your husbands that they might become more Christ-like in their love, their love for you, their love for for your children, their love for the church, their love for the world. We have a chance of affecting our culture as people see men and women who claim the name of Jesus Christ love and serve each other in marriage because it's going to look different in the world. And I'll tell you right now, from from my experience, 
when I practice this, mama's happy. And when mama's happy, we all are. Let's pray.